Welcome to Christ Training Church from wherever you may be joining us today, whether here at our Gables campus, our Kindle campus to the south, we love you and we are praying for you, or somewhere on this great, big, beautiful planet through Church Online, I greet you today in the spirit of God's love. Do you remember this commercial when it first aired about 20 years ago? Let's take a look. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Apple Think Different ad campaign changed everything about how we would later consume information, how we would entertain ourselves, how we would share our lives together. And uh, if, does anyone in here own an Apple product? Yeah, everyone in here except for uh, those couple of PC guys in the back sitting there with their arms crossed. We love you too. We love you too. We see you. But in the years leading up to this ad, Apple had lost market share in technology, and nearly a billion dollars on their failed Apple Newton computer. But the Think Different campaign changed everything. It marked the beginning of Apple's reemergence as a technological powerhouse, ushering in a brand new product that would change everything about how we process information. Do you remember what that product was by chance? The iMac. The iMac. And as of a month ago, Apple reached a $1 trillion value, nearly 1,000 times more than what they had lost 21 years ago. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Friends, the entire punch of John's first letter can be summed up in these two words. Think different. Now, by the way, online, there's a debate happening right now about the grammatical correctness of that slogan, Think Different. I, for one, am on the Think Differently side of that debate, the right side of that debate. So how might you think differently about your life? How might you think differently about your work? How might you think differently about your family, your spouse, how you raise your children, about how you live single, about how you play and mingle with others? How might you think differently about your money, even how you think about Jesus? And why, you might ask, why do you need to think differently about those things? Because I wonder how many people actually feel satisfied with their life. Do you feel satisfied with your life? Before John wrote his letters, he wrote his gospel about Jesus, quoting Jesus's own words, saying the thief's purpose is to steal kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life in Jesus's own words, them meaning you. The thief wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. That's his purpose. 
Jesus, however, wants to give you an abundant and satisfying life. Abundance upon abundance. Blessing upon blessing. Grace upon grace. Yet I often wonder how many people actually live that way. How many people live in the way of satisfaction? So, as a millennial would do, I asked the all-knowing Google, and I searched, are people happy? And within 0.13 seconds, Google responded. And here were some of the top headlines that came from that search. First being the happiness index. Only one in three Americans are very happy. The 2017 World Happiness Report, who even knew? Who even knew such a report even existed? Shows that Americans are less happy than ever before. Not only are Americans becoming less happy, but we're experiencing more pain too. Good news for our future. American happiness is at a 10-year low, a United Nations study finds. I mean, yikes. I mean, does that not grip you? It grips me. My Google search affirmed my hunch that very few people ever find real and true satisfaction, the very satisfaction for which Jesus promised to give those who follow him. Now, obviously, satisfaction doesn't mean perfection. Nor does it mean a life without troubles or pain. Quite the contrary. Satisfaction means fulfillment, even amidst your pain. On the flip side, then, I wonder how many people feel like something has been stolen from them? Like they're dying on the inside. Like their life is being destroyed from the inside out. Do those words resonate better with you? Are your actions currently hurting someone? Are you hurting yourself? Is someone hurting you? Friends, if the words steal, kill, and destroy describe your current circumstances, either by your own hand or by someone else's hand, then the thief is winning. And you must think differently about your circumstances. As an aside, for anyone facing immediate hurts right now, and you are within the sound of my voice, then I want you to know that we can help you. You can either complete a connect card and let us know. You can speak to someone right away, a ministry leader, a pastor on any one of our campuses. If you're joining us at Church Online, then you can speak with a chat host right now. Tell someone. This is a safe place where it's okay not to be okay. At this church, you can bring all of your hurts and all of your fa failures without the worry of condemnation. There is an enemy to Jesus who wants to steal, kill, and destroy from anyone standing off guard and vulnerable to temptation and sin. Yet also hear me say that satisfaction isn't a myth. There is a way to experience the promised satisfaction of Jesus here and now, despite whatever hardship you might be encountering right now or whatever hardship you will encounter. And it begins by thinking differently. Last week we discussed how John opened his first letter by overstating the absolute necessity for a real Jesus, the incarnation of a real living God as the foundational belief for our Christian faith. God lived and experienced our world through his son, Jesus Christ, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the consequence of our sin that we cannot heal on our own. God embodied human form and proclaimed the message which John declared in his letter stating, God is light. 
and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. The light is good. And living in the light produces triangular fellowship. My life in fellowship with Christ, your life in fellowship with Christ, and our lives in fellowship with one another. This is the very lifeblood of our church, which only exists when we live in the light. So what is the opposite? Well, it's living in darkness, which leads to division and conflict within a community, along with that which disintegrates our spirit and will eventually destroy our life. John begins chapter 2 saying this, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin and thereby experience separation and division from Jesus and one another. Full confession, I hate talking about sin. I hate it. I really do. I think any pastor who, who does enjoy talking about sin is completely missing the point about Jesus. But we need to talk about it because we need to understand our condition and we need to understand why the incarnation matters i hate sin because god hates sin i hate sin because god didn't create you to experience sin i hate sin because sin keeps us separated from god i hate sin because sin keeps us separated from one another i hate sin because it distorts disintegrates, and it will eventually destroy you. I hate sin because sin is a result of our own doing. God didn't sin against us. We sinned against God. We broke our relationship with God, and we keep it broken every time we make ourselves the very gods or goddesses of our own lives, inviting the enemy then to steal, kill, and destroy us, sometimes little by little, but sometimes in rather dramatic ways. Friends, the purpose of John's first letter is to proclaim the reality of the incarnation and its importance on our fellowship, which sin will divide and sin will eventually destroy when left untreated. We must learn how to think differently about our sin. The Apostle Paul wrote, fix your thoughts on what is true, on what is honorable and right and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think differently. In another letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, he said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, and pleasing, and perfect. Think differently. The key difference between being on the receiving end of the thief's purpose and the receiving end of Jesus' promised satisfaction is thinking differently. All of us will continue to fall short and miss the mark. All of us will. That's a promise in our lives so long as we continue to live in this broken world in our broken bodies. But hopefully we'll fall short and we'll sin less frequently and less significantly as our minds renew into Christ's likeness. Yet, as John states, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the 
Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous, meaning without sin. As a man, Jesus was right standing before God because perfect God had entered into human form perfectly. What a beautiful mystery. That's why only Jesus could stand before the Father and advocate for God's merciful forgiveness over us. For as John wrote, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. This great gift applies to everyone. Everyone. The Greek word atone is halasmos, which literally means to satisfy an angry party. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament, both times in 1 John, and both times in reference to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the consequence of our sin. Our sin deserves death. For the wages of sin is death, Paul wrote. Sin costs us something. And that price tag is our life. It's our very life. Yet Jesus offered halasmos, atonement on your behalf. Perfect God in a perfect man offered a perfect sacrifice to settle an infinite death once and for all. John's use of the word halasmos gives us a profound insight into God's character in that God's not angry with you. God isn't angry with you. God loves you. And through his incarnate son, God has made a way for you to come back home. To come back home. God's not out to get you. God's out to redeem you and ransom your heart from the thief. We've all done things that we hate and regret. Me being the first one to admit that. I've done so many things that I hate and regret. And it's only natural to question whether or not God could accept you or even love you for having done those things. Yet John is clear. On the cross, Jesus has made all of those who have placed their trust in him at one with God. Atone at one, period. We must think differently now about our sin and get honest with ourselves. You don't have to hit rock bottom in order to get honest about your circumstances. Sin will keep you believing that you are the God or goddess of your own life and therefore keep you separated from the actual source of all life itself, of all freedom, and of all satisfaction. Yet the good news of what Jesus proclaimed on the cross was that Jesus traded life for life. God ransomed you with his son. Paul continues in Romans 6.23, saying the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about this with me. How ironic that we have to pay for our own death but eternal life is free. How ironic. You ever think about, you ever think about your life like that before? It's like someone who says to you, you can either live in your own home for free, or you can pay me 400 grand to burn it down. Which is the better deal? It's time to think differently. All of us here know so many people willing to pay an un 
unfathomable price to burn down their own homes. Whereas Jesus is simply waiting to hand over the keys to his kingdom to you for free. It's time to think differently. And John offers us a framework for doing so, saying this, We know that we have come to know him, meaning Jesus, if we keep his commands. This phrase is absolutely critical to the theological premise of John's letter. Jesus is real, as John has stated. And we can know this real Jesus by keeping his commands. The English phrasing here, we know that we have come to know him, is an awkward statement. It's phrases like these that sometimes give the Bible a bad rap, right? This is a tough statement to, to chew on. John here used a perfect tense form of a verb, which is difficult to translate into the English language. Essentially, John means to say that knowledge is the result of past experiences with ongoing present consequences. For John, knowledge is experiential, and knowledge only reveals itself as we obey God. Thus, obedience leads to greater knowledge, and knowledge results in a deeper desire for obedience. It's like a flywheel. One leads into the other. John illustrates this flywheel in chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, by giving three tests of love, each one building upon the other. Listen to these tests. Listen for how they build one upon the other. Verses 4 and 5, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, he's a liar. This is a self-focused test of love. The first, the first test is knowing, renewing your mind. Verses 6 through 8, whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk as he walked. This is a Jesus-focused test of love. First you know, then you abide. Verses 9 through 11, whoever says, I am in the light, but hates his brother, he lives in the darkness. And this is an other-focused test of love. First you know, then you abide, then you love. First knowing. Your life changes the moment when you decide to think differently. Often renewal begins here before it influences here. As your mind renews into becoming like the mind of Christ, then you will find yourself growing into a life that abides in Christ. Now, abiding means to know, or to dwell, or stay and remain. To abide means to sustain an unbroken fellowship with someone, kind of like in the way that a friend's got another friend's back. That's what it means to abide. As your life grows into abiding in Jesus' life, then your walk becomes Jesus' walk. Your words become Jesus' words. You say and do as Jesus did. His experiences become your experiences. Not forced, but kind of like two images slowly becoming one. Sometimes in the morning, as I'm preparing to leave for my office, my daughter Hannah, who's four now, She'll come and she'll want to climb on my feet and she'll want to walk with me as I make my way through the house, collecting my things and getting ready to leave. In a very real way, when she does that, she's abiding with me. She's holding on to me, traveling with me, experiencing what I'm experiencing, and moving where I move. Half of all of the uses of this word abide in the New Testament occur in John's writings. Thus, according to John, to abide with Christ is absolutely crucial to how we experience our faith personally and our fellowship communally 
with one another as we live in obedience and knowledge together. Our lives in Christ can't remain independent from Jesus or one another. If we think we can float in and out of our faith and in and out of community, like we float in and out of our favorite cafes, then we're missing the point. We're, we're, we're missing it, friends. We're, we're missing the point entirely. In fact, it's the exact opposite, according to John. It is Christ who holds our lives together as we make our dwelling in Jesus together. Walking on his feet where Jesus walked. Seeing the world as Jesus saw it. This is why total strangers, whether they be Jesus followers or not, can walk into any healthy and faithful church and experience belonging before they ever believe. It's a wonderful, mysterious, and compelling witness to the fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit uniting our community together as one. And friends, this is worth every ounce of our energy to fight for. This is worth every ounce of our energy to fight for. In fact, it's the only thing worth fighting for in the church. If there's anything, it's this. Our fellowship with one another is what makes our community uniquely better in the world. It is our greatest witness to a world fractured by individualism and divided by power. Only then, together, will we experience the transformation of our being from the inside out as we know, as we abide, and as we love. As you walk in the light, your being is changed. Obedience leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to abiding in Christ, and abiding results in love. As you begin to walk on the feet of Jesus, and his life becomes yours, then eventually love will begin to overflow from you toward God and others, because that's who God is. God is love. John doesn't mince words about this. If you're not loving your brother or your sister, then you're walking in darkness. Here, John's reference to a brother or sister is not some abstract brother or sister living on the other side of the planet. John is directly referencing your brother or sister, God's son or daughter, sitting right next to you in the church, sitting right next to you in your local cafe, driving next to you, in the lane beside you, sitting next to you in your home. These men and women are God's sons and daughters, and God calls you to love these men and women in the same way that God does. Love is the tangible evidence of our faith. This is how all others will know that you are obedient, renewing your mind and abiding in Christ. How you love is your testimony. John wrote in his gospel, quoting Jesus, saying, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, if you love one another. I once heard someone say that if you want to love the world, the world begins right next to you. Love becomes genuine only when it is tested. 
our love is tested only when we reach beyond ourselves to love someone who we do not wish to love. This is the kind of love that John has in mind. It's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for all of us. Let me illustrate it another way. The Gospel writer Matthew recorded Jesus saying, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus tells us to love God and love others as ourselves. Which one is the most important commandment to obey? Jesus said love God is the first and greatest. But then, Jesus remarks, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Friends, you can't do one without the other. You can't do one without the other. We can't love God and hate someone or hate ourselves at the same time. If you hate yourself, then you are hating the very image of your creator that God created in you. John is clear, if you are living your life in this kind of dichotomy, then you're living in spiritual darkness, walking blind to the truth about your faith, and you're living in sin. Friends, it's time to think differently. It's time to think differently. Choose love. We're so much better together. Tell the truth. Not the kind of truth that blows another person up to smithereens, but the kind of truth that builds dignity and character into another person. Stop pretending. Get honest with yourself and others and let the light of Christ light up your life. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Obey, no, abide, love. Obey, no, abide, love. This is the pathway to spiritual maturity. It begins with your obedience. It begins with knowing and the renewing of your mind. It begins with abiding, of walking where Jesus walked. And then it begins with loving, of actually working out and being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. It's at once so personal. This is so personal. And at the same time, it is so communal. Because we do this together. We're not doing this alone. We need to claim our freedom and live like freed people. We need to claim our forgiveness and live like forgiven people. We need to claim our salvation and live like saved people. And we need to claim our love and live like a loved people. Imagine what might happen if we stack our hands on each other's and live out our love in sweet fellowship together. Friends, this is our greatest testimony. This is what it's all about. This is how the world will know. So, this week, may you choose courage over fear. May you choose love over apathy. May you choose satisfaction over sin. And may you choose Jesus over yourself. And together, may we think differently about who we are 
and what we do this week. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Father, for the world changers, I pray you give them courage. I pray you take away their fear. I pray that you give them satisfaction, the satisfaction for which all of us long. I pray that your Holy Spirit fills us and renews us and cleanses us and sanctifies us in this world so that we can be true image bearers of your good news. God, help us. Help us. God, fill this church with your spirit, with your all-consuming spirit. Fill all of those who hear, wherever they may, may be listening, with your spirit. And Lord, we ask that you give us a vision for how we may work this out, for how we may put our hands to good work, for how we may set our feet upon a good path, for how we may love our families well, for how we, we may live single well, for how we may play well, rest well, use our resources well. God, help us do all these things as our mind renews, as we find our life in yours, and as we love this world, beginning with the people right beside us. Lord, help us. Fill us with your courage as we make this prayer in your name. Amen.